Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I am so excited for this Marvel Fanfare Friday here on X's for Podcast. We're going to be finishing our coverage of Women in Marvel, which has been such an exciting thing for me to hear. It's raised so many important things that I just hadn't realized before. I love listening to my friends make me smarter. It is so incredible to hear their incredible coverage of this title. And then we're going to some of the best coverage of Shang-Chi we've ever done. I loved this issue and I loved this coverage. I only wish I could have been on the coverage. But we're here to kick things off talking about Ghost Rider number two. Now I'm saying we're, and that means I got somebody with me. With me this morning, kicking things off on Ghost Rider is TK. Hey, uh, it's TK. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I couldn't be more excited to continue where we were before talking about Ghost Rider. Now, we're here to just talk kind of about Ghost Rider today. Last time we talked about Ghost Rider and Punisher in terms of one another. And today we are just talking about Ghost Rider, but it is once again Ghost Rider in terms of something. While we're here to mostly focus on Ghost Rider number two, Dark Places, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Corey Smith and Brent Peoples, inks by Roberto Poggi, Oren Jr. and Brent Peoples, colors by Brian Valenza, and VCs Travis Lanham on letters. Uh, you know, and it makes sense that this book needs that much ink because this this is one of those gritty metal, gotta have the dark kind of books. So I think it just takes that many artists using their Coptic markers to get that much black on a page, right? But we're going to be kind of contrasting this with the first run of my precious Robbie Reyes as the all new Ghost Rider way back in like 2013. And this run was so significant because it not only introduced us to the incredible Robbie Reyes, but it was also a really major work for Trad Moore, who I think is like an industry-defining singular voice. And this was by Felipe Smith, Trad Moore, and Val Staples. And I want to kick things off with, I talk a lot about how much I love Robbie Reyes, but I have on more than one occasion mentioned that he got off to a rocky start. When I asked you to read all-new Ghost Rider in preparation of discussing it in contrast with this Ghost Rider issue, I did kind of put a caveat on, it's a tough read at times. How did you feel eight years after that book came out, looking back on Robbie Reyes's early revs? So, Robbie Reyes for me is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Robbie Reyes because I did not realize that anything was happening with Ghost Rider in the comics at the time. So I did not realize, I mean, I because I found out about the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. character, I came to understand that something was going on with the comics and a new Ghost Rider had been crowned, but I, I did not pay any attention to it. So Gabriel Luna, fantastic choice. You know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. never got its due, whatever. But you could see in that character on TV a lot of elements that to me worked. What it indicated was there's something here that is mineable. And unfortunately, just because of how he appeared and where he appeared, that didn't become as much of a thing as I think it could have done. I got into Robbie through you a little bit more in Avengers. So my interest was piqued enough that when you mentioned it might make sense to, you know, go back and read his first appearance, you know, I, I will often take your suggestions and go ahead with them, but I also know what my limits are. And there are times where you will suggest something and I can definitely 
definitely say like, I will read it if it's like for a project that or something we're going to talk about, but I don't actually think that's something that interests me. And I can tell you that and feel with relative certainty that I'm correct. This was one where I was like kind of on the fence, but because of your enthusiasm for Robbie, I was very excited to sit down and read this. And the first thing that I kind of thought about as I was getting into it is the your caveats have a lot more to do with how protective you are of Robbie than they do with the problems in the story. And there are problems in the story. And... I love this take already. This is like the best <laughs> thing I've heard all day. Fucking bring it. I love this. This is amazing. No, there are definitely problems with the story. There's, I would, oh, no, no. You know, I mean, like, um... no, please tell me that I have fandom blinders on. I know you... I get that way. Like, you know, I think a lot of times we have fandom blinders of, you know, this, I don't like this. I like the other thing. And so this thing sucks because it's not the thing that I like. Your fandom blinders are very much like, I want to like this thing so much that when there are flaws, I want to warn you so that should you come to the same property that I'm trying to show you, you will not hate it because I there's things about it that I really love. And so your your preparation ahead of time had me going into this being like, this is going to be a fucking disaster. And it's good. I mean, like the art is just as you have kind of already said, it's singular. It is character defining in such a good way. I don't know how many of you checked out the strange talent of Luther Strode, but that is where Trad Moore really kind of rose to people's attention. An artist that I have really been interested in for a really long time. Just a, a brilliant visionary of style. And I don't think anything looks like it. It's so one of a kind. It is. It's got some, you know, anime influences. It's got some animation influences. Like It's very dynamic. And if you are going to create a character that has a lasting impression, this is the kind of artist that you want to bring on so that there is a style that no matter what goes on with the character, who else writes or draws them, you always have a sort of touchstone to look back on and be like, but man, his his Robbie Reyes Ghost Rider skull face is unlike anything and other people have done amazing renderings of it, but it is what he drew that is now completely associated with Robbie Reyes and it's a gorgeous design. That in and of itself is enough to make this book something worth reading, but Robbie's a good character. Robbie's a great character. Robbie is somebody who you want to follow as a protagonist. The challenges that are given to him, his setting and his sort of background is problematic. But I see with tighter editing and with sort of a a standard of maybe we don't allow certain people to depict certain lives that they don't have the experience living to make such bold statements about. This really could have been one of the best introductions of like the early to mid 2000s of a a sort of rework of a character. I very much agree. And oh God, when you said Tradmore is the only one who can draw a Tradmore image like Tradmore, truly fucking fucking hell, man. I don't even know what else to say, but like- I mean, it's unfortunate because Chris Anka comes in towards the end of the book and does some gorgeous art. And like Chris Anka is somebody who I'm like, you know, nobody Chris Anka is like Chris Anka. And he also does amazing spins on characters that I love. It is insane to me that Trad Moore's Robbie Ray as Ghost Rider is so iconic and gorgeous and has been going so strong throughout the start of the series that even Chris Anka is not quite doing it for me in the same way. That's an insane thing for me to say. I don't think I will say that ever again in my life. But in this particular case, yeah. Not to cross some really strange streams, but like I had the luxury of seeing both Bet and Bernadette do Dolly in the same year. And like, I can't believe that I was saying that Bet wasn't the best at like, but Bernadette, it was just like, there was something about the way. And like, you know, 
know, and that's exactly like Ghost Rider, um, because the train in in the sequ- in Hello, D- so um, way too gay for you. So <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm I'm good. I'm fine. Trust me. So uh, you know, I do really love your perspective on all of that, and I think one of the things that is really important to mention is that this book was born at a time where I think the Marvel Universe had a lot of gears in play that were all culminating towards something big. And it's kind of a funny thing that also happened at DC where, you know, uh, the great Grant Morrison was just starting their true run on Batman because every now and then I'm like, didn't it start with Arkham Asylum? Didn't it though? I'm like six years old and I watched this woman spit out a cockroach. Fuck. So like, you know, uh, but Grant Morrison and their run on Batman had just gotten started and then they're all like, up oh, new 52. And so then Marvel's over here and Marvel's like the all new character initiative nope, nope secret wars and you know it's barely into robbie's time as ghostwriter when he has that wonderful secret love special that vaguely implies that electra matt and karen have a threesome going and an alternate universe robbie and kamala have a thing and i'm like obsessed with that pairing for the rest of my life now so you know i feel like that's a, a really important thing to consider as well how much of this book was designed with a long lasting you know uh, sort of view of where this was going to go and how much of it was, but we're secret wars in it up anyway. Well, and I think the, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Robbie Reyes is an important sort of wrinkle in the whole thing because a lot of the all new stuff was we got to update things so that should we find an opening for them on screen, they are, nobody wants to see Johnny Blaze on screen. I'm sorry, we're, we're, we're past that. It either needs to be a completely rebooted character or a new version of the character. So a lot of the all new was about how can we rework a property that we own so that should it should we find a place for it on screen it's going to pop and he is a really good example although the place that they found for him did not wind up being as lucrative as it could have been and you said something earlier and you know I do have some concerns about the depiction of people with disabilities in the pages of all new Ghost Rider as somebody with an invisible disability I know that I am on the yeah but you can be about it like I don't I don't have anywhere near the like to stand on but I know that for so many people it is you know a a somewhat troubling depiction and I think one of the most important things is how hard Marvel has worked to better represent all of the ideas initially put forth in Ghost Rider I think back on the recent Valentine's Day special and how far this character this brother dynamic has evolved in the pages of Ghost Rider and it is really interesting that Jason Aaron, a, you know, by all measures, a a very white man, is someone who has done some of the best character work on Robbie Reyes. I mean, he truly understands the character in a beautiful way. And it comes through, whether it's in his Avengers or, which I'm loving way too much in a fanboy kind of way, Avengers Forever. I think one of the things about Aaron is that he understands the sort of paternal or big brother love for, you know, a student or a little brother or a child that a lot of the Marvel characters are set up for in such a way that he you know in the initial Ghost Rider story the initial Robbie Reyes Ghost Rider stories you know his brother is I don't like to describe it this way but I think this is one of the problems with the book he comes off as kind of an albatross for Robbie like what's Robbie gonna do about his brother and it's not really until Avengers that you get the idea that it always 
should have been, which is that his brother has a complicated life. It is, a, you know, they, they face challenges together as a family, but his brother is an asset. His brother is somebody who loves and believes in him no matter what. And Aaron knows how to depict that in a way that it lifts the character up and is not like, haha, I put a challenge in front of him. With Gabe, one of the things that the book allows us to do is it allows us to see some real consequences for a character that would have these real consequences. And that is something that I really loved about Ben Percy's Ghostwriter, in particular, these first two issues. Robbie's psychology is examined because he's responsible for Gabe. His father is deceased. His mother is deceased. And, you know, all things said, Uncle Eli isn't exactly the best dude. So, you know, he is the he is the focal point of his family. He is a very young man who was forced into this paternal role, this, this caregiver role. And you still see him wanting to thrive as a youth. You still see him wanting to thrive as someone who is coming of age. He still tries to look cool. He still styles himself. And he still has a love of cars. Like, you know, he's still someone who isn't willing to give up his childhood just because of this adulthood foisted upon him. And yet he never takes it out on Gabe. So, you know, it's exactly what you said. Robbie's a really good fucking guy. and But he's that- also a kid and he's a, like, he in the first issue, he goes on a street race. Like, he could leave his brother to die by going on a street race. But that's something that a kid would do. Like, even if you love your brother and you know you're the one who's his caretaker, if you're 16 and you just want to live a 16-year-old life, you will put your little brother to bed and then go do a street race because you think somehow you can juggle those things even though you're an idiot and you can't. And that's part of that, like, teenage immortality. Yeah. Because, you know, Robbie's faced with mortality on a lot of levels, but he still operates with teenage immortality. Which is a great foil for demonic immortality. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the reasons that, like, I was really so nervous when Marvel was like, hey guys, real quick, Robbie Reyes, leaving the Ghost Rider title. We're putting, I'm like, why? And then, you know, that previous run, really good, did really strong things, the Brisson run, right? And I liked all of the crazy fucking things it did with creating, I don't know, like a super armored Ghost Rider holy warrior. Hysterical. I love it. Very serious. But like, you know, the, the contrast of it is so over the top and seeing it in that King and Black special kind of gave it some weight, you know, and that it still ties into the the classics of Mephisto and uh, Blackheart. Everything I was really looking for that if you were going to go back to a ghostwriter that made me nervous, at least you did it right. And Ben Percy's ghostwriter didn't have me nervous because I don't like Ben Percy. I think Ben Percy is a fantastic writer and I love so much of Ben Percy's work. It had me nervous because this had all the makings of kind of throwing ghostwriter in reverse. And so I had been terrified that what we were going to get was a massive reset on some of the progress that Ghostwriter had made as a title because Robbie was off doing his own thing in Avengers Forever, so it didn't need to be progressive anymore. But instead, what we got was, you know, there's a difference between making what looks like an old shitty video game and making a really cool 16-bit throwback game. This Ghostwriter series has all the makings of like a classic Ennis Dillon collaboration. I feel very much like I'm stepping into the pages of Preacher in a lot of ways. A man with some inability to remember the world around him, containing a demon walking through life, trying to contain the, you know, burning fire of judgment within him that is putting him against, you know, mystical beings. In a lot of ways, it does feel like this is in that pantheon of Vertigo titles that are kind of coming out of Marvel right now. So far in the first two issues, we have seen a kind of episodic transition 
transition from the first issue to the second. These are two very different stories. You know, if we started with this issue two as the first issue, it could still kind of work, which to me says that we're building piece by piece through exploring Johnny Blaze's headspace in the world that is depicted through this lens of horror fantasy. We're not getting a really serialized, here's all the elements, here's the continuation of those elements in the second issue, here's the continuation in the third. There is a stark story being told in issue one that is very different than the story that's being told in issue two, but we are world building within that, and the horror fantasy magic corner of Marvel is, I think, where I'm seeing so much potential and so many possibilities, not just for storytelling, but for pulling together a cohesive whole that when we look at it and when you look at the creators that get put on these titles, we get excited about the idea that finally somebody like Ben Percy, who I've been reading, you know, doing incredible international politic, guerrilla warfare, X-Men stuff, the idea that now he's on something that is entirely different has its own style and for which his voice is going to appear very differently. It's exciting. And one of the things you said about that that really like reverberated with me is I love that we're seeing Ben Percy kind of flex here. He's doing a very different book. You know, he could be telling a very similar story about a hyper-violent introspective white man with a rage problem that he can't control, but we're not getting the same kind of Wolverine story. I mean, this... he could be doing like Hell's CIA too. There, yeah. He could, you know, there are so many ways in which this could be X-Force for the horror fantasy set. It is so not that. And and Johnny Blaze is so not Wolverine. And, you know, one of the things that definitely identifies Johnny Blaze, and I, I could probably be misspeaking a little bit because perhaps I don't know know enough about Danny Ketch to be completely fair with you but I feel like if I look at a ghostwriter cover outside of the very Trad Moore's kind of unique ghostwriter or looking at either one of the female spirits of vengeance I do think ghostwriter has kind of had very much the same flaming head horror red black and orange cover for about 20 years now I think it has had a very singular look on the outside which has had a lot of concerns for the inside but you know in regard to what you're saying that this doesn't read like any other off the shelf and like I don't mean off the shelf like Ben Percy oh everything Ben Percy but like this doesn't read like any oh Ben Percy just reached for some off the shelf story he had in his head right no it feels like this is a really considered run and something you said is the like fantasy horror element of it the seedy idyllicness right there like I have driven a lot for I worked in uh, multiple states for a while and uh, I am a big a big traveler where I can be and this does feel like every motel off of 95 and it's awful for that reason in a good way it's the right kind of awful it's churn your stomach awful and I mean I think the last issue gave us very Twin Peaks vibes this is kind of Bates Motel he's pulling some great references that we can associate with horror fantasy and sort of start to pull an idea together in our heads of 
of these are the types of stories that would be really great to tell in this corner of the universe versus like procedural crime in Hell's Kitchen versus, you know, queer smut romance on Krakoa. He's showing us a lot of opportunity for for storytelling within the Ghost Rider mythos. Because one of the things he seeks to do, not just, you know, we have like great human scenes, which again, very, and this is never to say, oh, someone's derivative. You know, we're all influenced by the artists around us. And if you are so talented that you get to become a contemporary of somebody who's influenced you, fuck yeah, man, get it. And, you know, one of the ways in which this feels like a very hellblazery Ennessy comic is that sequence in the car where it's like, are you a seer? Ah, I broke into your stuff. But, you know, the sequence at the end with the giant worm demon. Yeah. Talk about expanding mythos here. This is very clearly an effort to give us even more to focus on because it could just be about, you know, the wanton violence. Like, yeah, there's stuff that makes me a little, I I maybe didn't need it. The guy snapping his own neck, not my thing, but I don't think that that doesn't fit the story, but there's so much going on here that I do find myself excited to understand the mystery. Yeah. And to understand where Johnny Blaze is as a character that we can see him evolve into a protagonist that we might really root for. I don't mind that he's not that when we start. I don't mind that I'm kind of just looking at him. I think I already made this reference, but I'm going to do it every time we talk about this as like a Kimberly Shaw type who showed up with an insane scar and I need to know the backstory and figure out sort of, is this a anti-hero bordering on villain that I'm going to enjoy watching the path of destruction and maybe the heroes that rally around him? Or is this a redemption slash finding oneself arc in which I might start to see Ghost Rider as like a potential recruit to a new Midnight Suns or something? Ah, come on, Johnny. You can't keep doing this to me. What am I supposed to do? Go back to Jane. Peter won't ever understand. (laughs) That's my best Michael Mancini having an argument with Johnny Blaze as Kimberly Shaw. Um, that was criminal. I forgot to have Sydney try and sit in his lap. And I think you're completely right that this ghostwriter feels like an entry point to something bigger. You know, Marvel is so cagey about whether something is going to be five issues, a hundred issues, an ongoing, a mini. I think back to how many times the Jubilee series, like, and of course I'm talking about like 2005. So please remember, I am talking about literally before the ice age and Jesus had a crossover right but so back in 2005 there was this like six issue jubilee series that they're like jubilee gets an ongoing mini series that stops at five six five it's an ongoing that's a mini series it's an ongoing mini series that stops at six and like it just kept changing and like the covers you cannot figure out if they're of a number or if they just are that number and so if you know back to our conversation from the other day i i see this last page and we have an exciting you you know, female protagonist in this character. And I do need to be honest. I feel as though perhaps the characters' names aren't said often enough in this book where I sometimes feel like I don't have certain things that I could benefit from. Like, I mean, just it sounds dumb, but kind of like say the characters' names a little more. It would give me something to focus on. But you are right about the fact that we're not repeating it enough and sort of establishing character beats enough 
that Talia we... Warroad. Yes, Warroad. That is, yeah, yep, you're right. We do get a name for her. It feels a little like she is very NPC, and the problem is she's actually really interesting, and juxtaposing her against Johnny is very interesting. So I'm sort of having trouble understanding, is this a signal just not to get invested in her because she really is just going to be a boss battle for Johnny and then we're going to move on? Or is this somebody, because I feel like looking at this character, I'm like, you know, she shows up in three years in another corner of Marvel Magic Universe and it's like, oh yeah, I remember her from Ghost Rider. She's a really cool character. I could see being compelled by her already just two issues in. And since we know that Percy has such a stake in the bigger picture of the Marvel Universe, he's on so many books. I know that this issue does absolutely have a kind of paint by numbers feel to it, but it's in a way that I want it to be. You're trying to tell me a story that fits into a specific narrative trope type. If that's going to be the case, then I want it to fit into that narrative trope type. Yeah, and I want to see the recognizable beats that also tell me what I should start getting into my head is the point of this book. Exactly. You know, with the Robbie Reyes early Ghostwriter issues as an indication of what a run that seeks to redevelop the mythos of Ghostwriter can be, I feel like Benjamin Percy and this incredible team of artists are really pulling together a narrative that I'm interested in seeing where it goes. Like there's books where you read it and you're like, you know what? Yeah, this was a really fulfilling read, but you might not ever think about it ever again. I find that the Ghostwriter series is maybe a little bit the opposite. I don't walk away from these first two issues going, man, I got everything I wanted. I walk away hungry. And it's not because they're not filling. It's because they're leading me to think about things I wouldn't have otherwise thought about with Ghostwriter. And I'm eager to see how this plays out in the next couple of months. Yeah, I want to see how else they can play around with the genres that they're they're pulling from. And I'm curious to see how this is going to fit into a wider picture of the Ghost Rider mythos and the horror fantasy corner of the Marvel Universe. Until we come back to talk about more Ghost Rider, we have some more incredible coverage coming your way. We're going to kick things off with the balance of our Women in Marvel coverage. Now, this next coverage does include people that I believe you and I are both familiar with, TK. I have had a comic with Tori Sheehan, who uh, runs this next segment, Women in Marvel, forever now. And I believe, TK, you're familiar with Jake. Somewhat, yes. We have been in something of a long-term relationship for the past 15 years. Yeah. So, you know, I'm super excited for us to get a chance to kick back and listen to this amazing coverage with some amazing people we love, as well as the always incredible Raven. So guys, enjoy this next segment. And don't forget, you guys can give us a follow over on Twitter at X is for podcast. That takes us into Squirrel Girl's Combfoot. <laughs> <laughs> I like Squirrel Girl as a person who's never actually read any of her stuff, but is just like, yeah, this girl seems like my vibes. And then to combine her with Black Widow, who is so very much kind of the personality opposite of Squirrel Girl, seemed like a really fun concept. Yeah. I mean, I thought Nancy was kind of holding down the real energy in this particular issue. Like the voice of reason throughout this whole 
whole little story was Nancy just being like, um, are we sure this is what we want to do? Are we sure this is how this is going to go? Right. Mm-hmm. It, honestly, it was so much fun. And and Nancy and Squirrel Girl Doreen had such good chemistry. Like, mm-hmm. it felt like a natural back and forth, not like a, a like a forced interaction. It was so good and so needed because you've got these two wacky teen slash college students Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, Black Cat, who's just, I'm serious, and I'm a spy. And you're like, yeah, but have you tried lightening up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Nancy and Doreen are just roommates, right? They're not girlfriends? I believe they're just roommates, yeah. Okay, because they've got great chemistry. I would read a book that was about them, like, growing into a romantic yeah. relationship. I could see them in being like like late girlfriends but honestly i think the want to queer code somebody trust me i want to do it with everybody i'm terrible <laughs> same, i am same, so same. terrible but yeah. like i think there is something to be said for strong platonic relationships yes because it's it's sometimes it's too easy to like okay everybody's gay now everybody's queer they've got to be like bisexual pansexual something we got to just everybody in like well it's you know it's always that problem of narrative scarcity like yeah. will there ever be enough queer characters probably not but are there enough you know like examples of two women having a strong platonic relationship no mm-hmm. not really either so yeah. yeah i think i think you're right it, it totally this this is a good relationship as it is yeah and i love it i really 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 love it and like <laughs> i don't i don't necessarily need to see them like go off and get their own girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever but like i really want to see a good healthy relationship because it looks like this is the kind of relationship that they have you know garnered over at least a couple of years mm-hmm. like doing the college thing doing the doing the robotics and science thing and i'm like i'm loving it and and i'm okay seeing it honestly this is i think this is one of the best uses of of yeah you've got cis probably het white women but you're also including a character of color who feels like they should be there Mm -hmm. yeah she she, nancy is definitely part of the team Mm -hmm. and kind of integral Mm -hmm. to it as well also like the mad thinker is cheesy and cliche and silly but like i i kind of need that i kind of want that for this i don't need like an end of the world scenario like some dude with mechanical roaches is perfectly fine (laughs) i love that i am the mad thinker wow that's really ableist i'm like (laughs) (laughs) you're not wrong they're not wrong (laughs) how about the free thinker i'm like oh my god <laughs> what in the libertarian <laughs> it was funny it was poignant but yeah it felt like so in in step with the you know the incredible squirrel girl it felt mm-hmm. well placed and it was fun it really 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 was fun Tiny i really loved squirrel. this this black <laughs> widow and how ridiculous she is like <laughs> yeah she's usually very serious but here she is talking about modok's blu-ray collection <laughs> all of the food that she wants to eat like i love seeing like a a character who in other books might get that very sharp no nonsense characterization get to like let her hair down a little bit and be silly and fun and she, she reminded me a little bit more of the new black widow in yelena. the mcu yelena oh, she yeah. mentions her in this one they're chatting to each other the, i feel like that's some of the characterization we're getting with this this particular natasha the bad job number four for black cat she infiltrates a bedroom of someone for one of her own earrings what is this? Oh, it's this old chestnut. 
chestnut, which yeah. is also my favorite chestnut. So like, <laughs> I'm I'm always gonna be a Felicia and Peter uh, shipper. So, oh right, that's a Spider Man mask. There, that's a the Spider Man mask. Yep, mm. mm-hmm. a lifetime ago. I know it's an oof for oof. sure, especially since <sighs> no shade to MJ. Yeah, sort of. Okay, mm-hmm. a little bit of shade to MJ. Um, <laughs> but but mostly it's the I think that Peter Parker and Black Cat had a really interesting rapport that could have been built into something more but they went the mj rap because they wanted to give peter parker the supportive girlfriend and black cat would have never she would have right. she would have been a supportive girlfriend but also she's she has her own thing she has her mm-hmm. own plots and plans and long-term goals and how she operates and you know danger she's going to put herself in mm-hmm. and they they just couldn't do that because that might outshine her male counterpart yeah it would i also yeah. think it's about like you can you can of course obviously make the direct connection between her and peter and catwoman and batman and mm-hmm. that i think the difference is is that batman is older and more secure in who he is and and what that means for himself and how he handles his vigilanteism where i always feel like peter being so much younger still struggles with the secret identity struggles with what it means what the responsibilities are and so for black cat would be a better supportive girlfriend if Peter was more secure in who he himself is. Okay, the next thing I say is a joke, but <laughs> I hear Batman it. is an emo 16-year-old boy trapped in a 40-year-old man's body. He doesn't eat kitty and <laughs> oh, like dear. <laughs> I get where some people could run the comparison of Black Cat, Spider-Man, and Catwoman, Batman, but Spider-Man and Batman are two like seriously different characters on so many levels. I think the interactions would have played out much different. The conflicts right. they could have brought up could have been much different because, yeah, you're right. Peter does suffer with a lot of confidence issues that billionaire Bruce Wayne slash Batman man doesn't really have to worry about i mean the man doesn't worry about getting himself therapy but poor ass <laughs> peter parker you know does worry about where his next meal is going to come from where his rent is going to get paid like mm-hmm. he has real world concerns so why <laughs> why not do it but i also do understand this character is definitely independent and can do mm-hmm. other things and does not need to be with spider-man but yeah it's like oh she had to go back and, and yeah noticing the the little mask i'm like i'm just gonna be over here my feels and hurting for her i'm so sorry girl i'm so sorry she's just so much cooler than him oh god (laughs) by a million that's part of it yeah like i don't think he he loves that she's like a technically a criminal but you know she loves that she's a criminal he hates it but then again he's a little bit boring that way (laughs) he's a square he's a total square speaking of people who are not boring shanna the she-devil and silver sable in cry the jungle (sighs) yes thank you so much you're which, welcome. Which clearly takes place after uh, the Kazar run that we just ended, I want to say about a month ago, which it was phenomenal. It was amazing. Look up Kazar of the Savage Lands. It, it was gorgeous. It was well done. I love the story to bits and pieces. Like, cannot say enough about how much I freaking love it. But how did we feel about this one? Mm. <laughs> 
like okay overall i did like the story i just had a few gripes with how shanna handled things towards the end but let's start with the beginning of the story and not jump to the end it was it was well done i i like the fact they didn't keep it strictly in the savage lands and that Mm -hmm. they showed that yes they still have a connection to the rest of the outside world you know like you're not just stuck in the savage lands forever yeah this is the savage land stuff is not it's not a marvel corner that i'm very well versed in outside of the the way the x-men have interacted with it and so my familiarity with kazar and shanna is like largely from like the 60s 70s and 80s material and so i really like that the first thing i'm really getting here is that shanna has a life outside of kazar (laughs) like that's important yeah in those old appearances she's only ever defined by her relationship to him Mm -hmm. and here she's like no no i have a life and i like worked in a zoo and i worked with this guy amir he was really cute yeah you can be jealous (laughs) but like i had a life guys Mm -hmm. oh my goodness yes the fact that like neither her son nor her husband was like trying to stop her like no no no, they should be able to handle on their own they're like oh oh, oh, okay apparently your your mom's going off for vacation or whatever okay cool cool i'm like yeah that's right she's an independent functional autonomous person Mm -hmm. and she's like yep nope i gotta go off and help my friend and they're like okay like yeah although wow did she just keep the most this is so jungle safari (laughs) yeah this this definitely has like that jungle safari feel like i i feel like there's like a couple of movies lately that have been coming out that are very much just like this kind of like feel to it like we get in the car we drive through the jungle we go to a, a a shack and then we make our plan and then someone likes guns and someone doesn't like guns and then we go to the x and then we stop the car and run to somewhere else and etc etc so genuinely surprised there isn't a pith helmet somewhere in there (laughs) oh my god i was honestly waiting for a pith helmet to show up (laughs) but can we also revel in the fact that she's got a photograph of her family so zabu matthew uh kazar and herself but she's also got a picture of her and amir which Mm -hmm. oh my god baby leopards it's so cute baby leopards and biceps right but you can tell from the pictures she's all about the animals she's Mm -hmm. about you know the conservation amir's standing there posing beautiful biceps out like you could be you could be curled up in that and she's not she's like she's concentrated on the animals in that picture but when it comes Mm -hmm. to pictures with kazar and her son like you can tell they're leaning towards each other they're very much a family unit she's very much in love with them i'm like oh that's lovely that she she values her friend but she also very much loves her family i'm like this was well done she's also got a very long manicure for a gal out in the savage land i'm like i didn't know savage (laughs) land had french manicures like what's that salon like (laughs) that is impeccable the fall people have like a real nail game (laughs) they do they do i'll believe it i enjoyed the fact that the friction between the two ladies wasn't so much like uh about amir or about dissing each other like the friction Mm -hmm. is do we use guns or do we not like they both know that each of them is very good at what they do it's Mm -hmm. just a a difference of opinion on how to move forward and i appreciated that well i'm getting the background too for shanna the violence and 
trauma against women that she's experienced and the role that weapons have played in that. Not knowing any of this, I love the narrative consistency here. I love getting that background and and having an understanding of like, it's not Silver Sable that she's rejecting, it's her methods. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, she's Mm -hmm. saying like, your guns are the problem. Your guns, not you, your guns. That kind of nuance is really important. And in this way, it doesn't feed into the women tearing other women down kind of narrative that's Mm -hmm. that happens way too often in stories like this yeah they they passed the bechdel with flying colors on this one they had two women Mm -hmm. on multiple panels talking to each other and with each other but not about men in a romantic fashion easily and they made it flawless it it flowed beautifully because it is yeah it was very much about the methods and not about the not about the implements I love the, this is as far as you go, Amir. And he's like, but, and they're like, no, 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 go. You're done. Mm-hmm. Bye. It's our turn now. Let the women work. Yeah. Exactly. Women gotta get to work, so please step out of the way. Exactly. Now, the ending, however, leaves a little to be desired. As they're taking these little baby orangutans back, they see a palm oil plantation that is expanding. And Silver Sable wants to take it out. And Shana stops her and starts to say, well, we just need to uh, hope that folks create laws by protesting, I guess, mostly peacefully, quote unquote, that you can't just destroy property because you disagree with it. It's unrealistic, I think, when we're talking about these kinds of characters who for whom vigilantism is kind of second nature. Um, And it feels it feels very like very much like the interjection of a political message into my comic. And I don't like that. Like and not a not a not a progressive political message not like the the like we're doing this because the earth is being threatened and we want to save it but like uh no we're gonna toe the line of like this is the law in this place and and it's not you know we, we don't break laws no it's a terrible thing to, to strike out against these massive megacorps who you know who we are like interconnected in our funding with like that that's an unrealistic interjection to me i wholly agree like why why bring this issue up if you're going to be lukewarm and tepid about it especially mm-hmm. in a in a superhero story with somebody who is the one of the protectors of the savage land and mm-hmm. who has had to use um some pretty rough and extreme measures at times in order to keep the savage land from being being destroyed by threats from within let alone this kind of thing like and you've got you've got one of the premier mercenaries sitting there right by her side you know gun loaded scoped ready to go and you're like oh no no we shouldn't do this i'm like this is this is a corporation setting up a, a palm oil plantation probably using an army military or mercenary presence in order to do this and we've seen this happen in real time Time. We're seeing this happen in real time. We are watching people being often brutalized and murdered by mercenaries and armies hired by corporations. Mm-hmm. And you're going to sit here and take no stance on it. You're going to give us this little song and dance about legality and and people holding up signs. Are you are you fucking kidding me? I mean, superheroism is about the power fantasy. It's about having characters who can go into those places where 
you know, where humans can't act and making that difference and making that change, even if it's just in fantasy. And it feels like it seems like here they walked right up to that and they were going to do it. And then someone was like, this is too far. Like this is this will insult someone who we need to not be insulted. And it's like very, it's very transparent, it's very transparent in that way. Like, who are they trying to not offend with this? I, I would have much more respected them if if they had gone up to that line and at the very least had Shanna go, just don't kill anybody. Mm-hmm. And then like have Silver Sable like shoot out a tank or shoot out a tread or, you know, just mm-hmm. scare them the fuck off. Like mm-hmm. give give the forest a rest for a day, you know, mm-hmm. something. But instead they're like, mm, no, I guess we're just going to take yet another armful of baby orangutans to a sanctuary. But but we're not going to stop the thing that is creating more baby orphan orangutan. Right. What the shit? Right. That doesn't play into my power fantasy. Yeah, no, not at <laughs> it all. It plays into my powerlessness reality. Yeah, and it sucks. Well, in other disappointing endings, we have the wrap up <laughs> of the Black Cat story, where I guess this is a good job because she gets what she wants. I I don't know what makes this a good job versus the bad jobs, but I guess it's that she gets to leave for her time with her mom on a stolen island? Yay! Rich people getting things that they want and uh, yay. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned this in the green room. I was really hoping that what this story was building was, you know, whatever the end, we would see this rarely appearing character named Jesse Drake who appeared in Marvel Voices Pride this past year. Um, Jesse Drake is one of the few on-the-page transgender characters in Marvel. She's a mutant, she's a metamorph and an empath, and she and Felicia had a little adventure in Marvel Voices Pride and, you know, came away being like, let's go get some dinner. Mm, Let's have a date. And that was awesome. And I was so excited when I saw that Black Cat was getting all of this page time in this issue because I was like, there's no way that they're not going to include my, you know, favorite trans Marvel character, Jesse Drake, because she is a woman. This is Women of Marvel. Yes. Awesome. And then we get here and it's like, okay, well, it's nice that it's her mom, but like, honestly... I, I I was very I was very disappointed. And and what's the significance of her mother? Because I honestly have not seen Black Cat's mother before. So like, what's the big mm-hmm. what's the big deal? Like, I much would have like you. I much would have rather seen like Jesse Drake, somebody who's been featured and prominent on and honestly needs more page time. Like mm-hmm. that would have been that would have been great having her show up. Like Felicia, what are you doing? You know this? Oh, fine. You've got mimosas. Okay, one one. Mm-hmm. We get mm-hmm. one mimosa but what you did you know uh, uh, oh ooh, you've got oh you've got brunch set up well <laughs> like give me some funny at the end like mm-hmm. something her mom showing up i'm like and i mean not know? to mention that it was an, a missed opportunity to make a definitive statement about where marvel stands on trans women mm-hmm. being women mm-hmm. and belonging to and being should like should be included in a women of marvel collection mm-hmm. and not relegated to pride every time time yeah. it undermines how we understand trans women as women i think the, one of the greatest failings of marvel for this book was it not so subtly put forth that what we consider women in marvel are non-trans uh are non-queer for the most part and are not people of color mm-hmm. for the most part yeah which is in my opinion deeply unfortunate because this could have provided them with so many opportunities to continue what they had done in their previous versions the women of color book the other books that they have put out highlighting particular 
communities. Mm-hmm. And Comunidad, uh, heritage, legacy, legacy, yeah, legacy. Yeah, there's there's been so many, and it's it's always fun to have these stories. Having these stories is better than not having these stories. I think we can all agree yeah. on that. Yeah, but absolutely. it could have been more and i'm hoping that we will get better in the future and not keep things so regimented that when we have a highlight of women in marvel that it continues to just be the white ladies because we're highlighting the women of color and the trans women in other issues absolutely 100 percent. I, I really do hope that that the next go around of something like this that they will think it through and and maybe talk it out a little bit more and understand that uh, it actually does need to be inclusive yeah i i think that it's important to hold marvel to this kind of work and say you know it's good that you've done this but we need you to be better and do better like your readers want to see more from you and not this like very safe very white very cis het kind of expression uh you know, this very narrow definition of womanhood Hey everybody, Nico here again. So we have one last segment for you guys, and I'm so excited about it. This Shang-Chi book has been one of the highlights of our coverage, and one of the things about it is the new art team that has come in with Marcus Toe has really made me look at all of these characters in new light, and sometimes it's just because Takeshi's too hot. It's just out of this world. But I am so excited to bring you guys this coverage of Shang-Chi number 10. As always, guys, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week with Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Friday. Fridays, though it's been a little bit more Wolverine on every episode lately, but with the end of the X Lives and X Deaths era, that should be coming to a close with Immortal X-Men out. We have a lot of amazing Immortal X-Men coverage coming your way next week. I've been Nico, and you guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And on a personal note, I am so excited to be able to announce this and to talk about this on air. Uh, you guys can check me out in the upcoming Young Men in Love anthology which features not just yours truly, but the incredible Anthony Oliveira and Terry Bloss and Cena Grace and Joe Glass and a bunch of those people have been on this fucking show. So definitely go out and help support this incredible piece of art that I could not be more privileged to be part of. You guys can order that through Diamond with code April 22-1275 or from your local comic shop. Until then, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcasts, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many complex sibling relationships week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me trying to get into Talo on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven, you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of Nortar. I'm Kyle, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience just like Sister Hammer did after her onslaught attack from her grandfather and she just badassed her way to living. And that means we must be talking about Shang 
Shang-Chi number 10, written by Jean Lunyang, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Arseniega, letters by VCs Travis Lanham, and gorgeous covers by Linnea Francis Yu and Sonny Go. And we are finally getting that sibling reunion we have always wanted. Multiple reunions, to be, <laughs> to be honest, and I'm yeah. very happy that they're both back. Yeah, for sure. Yes. One of the things I found most interesting about this issue was the way that it intercut at the start between the two situations that we have. The first one being Shang-Chi and Jilan and Esme breaking Takeshi out of prison, contrasted with Shihua's sister Hammer finally meeting her grandfather and getting roped back into this whole situation. And it was an incredibly interesting. The way that we cut back and forth between the two stories until we brought them together was a really potent way of reminding us that this is a family and that they're always tied together. Yes. So one of, things, one of my favorite things about this title and being able to read it for, you know, so many issues now is that I find that Shang-Chi can be at his most interesting when dealing with his inter-family connections. And that's not to say that Shang-Chi was ever or is ever a badly written character, but something that I learned about from our interview with Alyssa Wong that she talked about is that Shang-Chi, by like definition and by like textbook, is a very lawful good character. And there's nothing wrong with lawfully good characters, but there's only so many situations you could put them in before they start feeling a little predictable in the sense that you always know exactly what they're going to do. They're always going to choose the right option, no matter what they do. And there's only, I feel like, so many ways before that storytelling bears a little bit too repeating where it doesn't feel as interesting as say a character that's more neutral chaotic or evil where you put them in a bunch of different situations and have their response be tailored specifically to that situation and what they would do but when Shang chi has to deal with his family it creates this interesting conflict that i think really pushes the boundaries of what this character can represent and what this character can do so i'm always appreciative of seeing Shang chi having to deal with his family and what that means for his future and the choices that he has to specifically me because he's constantly torn between do I do the right thing or do I do right by my family and having sister hammer be in this issue as well as shang chi trying to save takeshi and being like well I guess he has to go back to prison and then thinking well maybe we could just bring him back I found so refreshing for the character to be put in a situation and saying maybe I have to put my morals aside for a second of doing what's right and constantly having to overcorrect and make up for what my father has done in order to make sure that I'm doing what I actually believe in is right. I think that's one of the reasons why I like Jilan being there. She's the one who's been pushing him to stick with his principles, whereas Esme is the one who's always pushing him to not always do the most lawful thing. So it gives him an opportunity to have somebody advocating for both sides of the decision, and it allows him to say hey i'm going to we're going to do it this way right now but we're going to do something in the future in order to remedy the fallout of it i was really excited to see sister hammer back and i was so stoked that they went back for takeshi i do really appreciate the juxtaposition between esme and jilan i really love the juxtaposition between them you know one reminding him of his principles and the other reminding 
reminding him that family is still important and he needs to make sure they still get done. And it was really interesting to see that in this issue, you know, he he gives in to Esme. He gives in to making sure that his brother is the one who's safe, so he does something that's not the most lawful. He attacks the guards and he breaks him out. I was really excited for this because, you know, it does show, and hopefully Takeshi can see this too, that he does care for him because he was clearly so excited when he saw them again breaking him out and was like disappointed when they were going to let him go back with the guards. I just can't wait to see how this goes because I really want Takeshi to stick around and I I wonder if he's really going to actually give him back to the authorities. Well, you know, we all know it's a very interesting thing in superhero comics because we see superheroes sort of make their own morality and make decisions about who needs to be in prison, who needs to be broken out when there are bigger things afoot in their world that necessitate somebody who the mundane world says needs to be in prison for them to come in and say, we're taking this guy out, we're pardoning his crimes because we know the the secret truth behind what actually happened and we need him for this mission or whatever the story might call for. We see superheroes do this a lot. And as Jonah mentioned, for Shang-Chi, especially in the wake of what he's doing to rebuild his father's reputation, he has a very different sort of sense of his own morality and sense of what needs to happen. But he still, for plot reasons especially, and for the sake of the story that we're seeing, he still has this need to sort of do the superhero thing and make the call that there's sort of a greater, more complex morality that only he and the people with him understand that requires, you know, in this case, that he break his brother out of prison because that's really, at the end of the day, it's what's necessary for the story. But in this case, it's what's necessary for their family to deal with the issues at hand. As a person of color, he has a lot uh, writing on this. I always think about, well, how are the other superheroes going to potentially use this against him when they've already, you know, come at him, you know, without really being diplomatic about it and asking him what's been going on. They just kind of go into full on, you know, assumption mode. They go into that whole showing up kind of like in AVX when the Avengers showed up with every single Avenger that ever existed (laughs) on the helicarrier and you see in Shang-Chi like these like extremely heavy hitters coming down and you know confronting him in like such a threatening way because uh, even though it's out of character for him he supposedly did something bad and I just worry that that's going to happen again and it's going to be worse this time and I also do wonder the choice like why he didn't say anything to the guards about the fact that he was doing this for the greater good because maybe they would remember it at least partially after he knocked them out. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely gonna be seeing this come back to haunt Shang-Chi. I'm glad that he decided to free Takeshi because I feel like having Takeshi there with them was a great family dynamic and it did suck having Takeshi taken away because of the whole Cosmic Cube incident. But once he was gone, it felt like something was missing from the story. It's good having him back. I really don't want to see another infighting between Shang-Chi and the Avengers, but if it has to happen, then hopefully there's some other kind of alternative that we can see. 
I hope that at least maybe going forward, you can just say, hey, my grandfather was hunting us from a different dimension and I kind of needed to make sure my brother wasn't going to die. So I apologize for that, but I had to do to make sure that somebody didn't die on your watch because you wouldn't have been prepared for this because these monsters broke in and probably would have killed all of your guards. And I feel like if he just frames it like that and actually has the Avengers, you know, listen to him as opposed to making all these assumptions without actually talking to Shang-Chi, I am still I think a little baffled that a lot of conflict that comes from these issues are that everybody's just kind of assuming Shang-Chi's intentions without ever actually asking him. And it just feels a little weird to me that they've known this guy for years and he's proven himself to be a hero and good. And the moment that he associates with his family's clan, it's immediate he's turned to the dark side. I mean, I think the flip of that, though, is that Shang-Chi has not been a great communicator about what he's doing. And and you can understand that a little bit more insofar as you get a sense of like going up to the heroes and saying, hey, I inherited this villainous thing, but I'm actually going to do really good things with it. Probably never is going to sound right and is probably always going to raise some red flags. So I sort of get why Shang-Chi has been a little more silent on his intentions with the Avengers, but it is a two-way street. And as much as we are seeing the Avengers make assumptions about Shang-Chi's intentions, we're seeing him in some ways make assumptions about how people will react to what he's doing and why he needs to keep it such a secret. How many other siblings do you think Shang-Chi has out there? Because we've seen, I think if I'm not mistaken, this is most of the ones that we've known about other than the ones that were potentially created for this title, like Sister Staff. But I was thinking, oh, how many more are we going to see? What are, the, what are they all up to? Because if his grandfather, obviously we might not know at this point because they've decided to go into Tal- Talo to go fight their grandfather head on i was kind of hoping we got to see like at least a couple of siblings even if they were unnamed just you know doing things randomly throughout the world of where they were hiding and about because if it's any amount of blood that could be a lot of people like that's a lot of dna to try to hunt down (laughs) well we did see that guy a couple issues back and we have to remember that their father is what a thousand years old so he's he's had a lot of kids (laughs) yeah i mean i think the the first thing that I think about is not so much siblings. I could imagine that if this book really goes the distance or if we see future Shang-Chi stories, that's a plot point that could always be brought up. I think they're probably going to save it for a while. I do think we're likely to see a lot more descendants and people who turn out to be distant cousins, but who are not necessarily directly related to them on the family tree. And that's okay. I think that we can find enough complexity in the fact that their father was thousands of years old and therefore has a very interesting version of descendancy in children throughout history. Absolutely. And it, it could be interesting to see like um, how some of them just, you know, want to live their life. Maybe some of them would like to train, be heroes, learn more about their siblings. And as we already saw with one of them, have ambitions to become one of the greatest villains. So there's just, there's a lot of story to work with there. I'm sure we are I'm going to see something about that in the future. We're just going to probably finish the arc with his grandfather first, hopefully, because it would be a lot to to pack into one thing. Yes. Do you guys think that the Jade Emperor is his grandfather, or do you think this is another kingdom slash family that's within this 
this magical world that's like, huh, you trespass on our territory. You must die. Which is, you know, fairly common. I think a lot of royalty does that. Not that I'm saying I agree with it, but it's what they do. Oh, I did assume that the Jade Emperor was his grandfather because he's often seen on, like, green creatures. He created the beasts with the Jade helmets, I guess, masks. The Tauti. Uh, yeah, so I assumed it was him, but that's actually a really good question because I really don't actually know. I guess we're going to find out. I honestly don't think he is the Jade Emperor. He seems more like like a military general, specifically because he just goes out on missions all the time. I don't think that an emperor would be on the front lines, but we don't really know much about the culture of, of Talo, so, you know, it could be possible. I just haven't really been getting that kind of feeling from him. Yeah, I think the only reason why I, like, really assumed is because of the, like, sudden jump to just we sentence you to death with nothing in between. I also kind of assumed that he might be like the court wizard or a general or something like that. I suspect that he is the secret power behind the throne who is telling the Jade Emperor like, oh, by the way, if this guy Shang-Chi ever shows up and there's like four other people with him and they all kind of look alike, just kill them all. Don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later. They're bad news. That makes sense. (laughs) But I suspect it could be one of those things where on his own were, or on their own, were the five siblings to go to the Jade Emperor with their heritage. It might be the type of thing where they would be very welcome, but for the influence of their grandfather, which through this arc, I suspect we will see them push back against in a number of ways. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to seeing how having all of the siblings together, how they're going to balance out, you know, all of their ideals and wants and ambitions within this new dynamic that they're building because I want to see how this affects Shang-Chi specifically. Like, how does he interact with them? How do they interact with each other? You know, does this cause issues? A lot of internal conflict on on what direction to go in when approaching a situation? I really cannot wait to see how that plays out. Well, and it's especially interesting because through all five siblings, we really have a complex moral spectrum from Shang-Chi over on the lawful good side to I guess Shiwa is maybe not chaotic evil, but she's definitely a lot more self-motivated and a lot more willing to do acts of violence to get what she wants. Absolutely. Um, you know, Zhilan is kind of closer to the lawful good. Esme is very much in between and young, and Takeshi is also in his ways obviously very in between. Yeah. I would say Zhilan is more like lawful neutral. Yeah, yeah. Her neutrality sort of comes from needing a space to belong. And she's gotten that from Shang-Chi. I think we were really close to seeing her get it with the mutants. And that was so exciting to me because we know that right now, especially in relationship to other corners of the Marvel Universe, the mutant morality is a very interesting question. And she would be a fascinating character to explore, you know, between these two worlds that she's in, how does her morality come into play when she? She's with her family and with Shang-Chi specifically, who is so lawful good versus with the X-Men who are much more complex when it comes to that stuff. I mean, this being a predominantly mutant podcast, I'm sure this is going to come as a shock to absolutely no one, but I really do hope that we get to see some Shang-Chi and mutant interaction because I think that could be really, really fun from that perspective. Yeah, I do too. The tiny little tidbit that we got with Wolverine was nice. But, you know, I I really would like to see them interact more just because 
Shang-Chi seems to move around the world a lot more than most other characters I've been reading. So there's opportunities for him to run into mutants all the time and specifically not Wolverine. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a really great point. I really like that because they have gone so many places within the span of 10 issues. That was a really good point. He could run into so many different characters especially since there are Krakoan gates around and they could they move around just as easily oh 100% uh, we've read uh, plenty of issues where Shang-Chi has been in Paris he's been in Seoul Korea he's been all over the place and he's a very worldly man He uh, he's kind of like a uh, I was going to say something and then I realized it doesn't actually make sense what I was going to compare him to so never mind on that part but he's just a very worldly person that's often found in a variety of different situations that I find fascinating that they just place him kind of anywhere on earth and they're like yeah he's here for this reason and it makes sense and you believe this and we go yeah we do believe this he is in paris and he's going to stop lady deathstrike at an art museum he is in seoul and going to fight this woman who's an arbor person trying to turn people into trees it's all fascinating and interesting that he seems to be everywhere so uh, also another person who set up their home base in new york specifically manhattan find it hysterical everybody is so localized to new york it is a a little crazy (laughs) it really is when it comes to Shang-Chi interacting with mutants. He, outside of Wolverine, which what I've learned of reading over the Wolverine Pixie crossover into Runaways, which if any listener hasn't had a chance to at least read that part of this uh, current Runaways series, it was honestly a blast to read. It was very fun to <laughs> see Wolverine interact with Molly in very funny ways. But what that made me realize is that it seems like when a new mutant plops up on Cerebro and they're like, we need help. Somebody come save me and take me to Krakoa. Or they're like trying to invite somebody to Krakoa. They send Wolverine. I, I guess it just Wolverine is just the person who has to go pick up everybody. <laughs> He's done this before. Um, it's not new where somebody pops up and they're like, Wolverine, go collect that person. He went to go collect Angel Salvador. I would love to see Chung-Chi interact with more X-Men characters, specifically whether it's the X-Men team or a subsect team or something because, especially in this run, he's interacted with the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and Spider-Man. And it's like, okay, so we've hit some of the bigger teams. Like, well, why not the X-Men? Wolverine does not represent the X-Men. Wolverine could represent mutants or Krakoa, but like, that's not the same thing. I'm like, what, what, where's the team? Because I feel like the X-Men would be a lot more understanding, because I don't know if they have as much history with Shang-Chi that they f- would feel betrayed by him running his father's society. It more so feels like they'd be a lot more willing to understand where he's coming from, and yes. I would love to see how that kind of interaction goes about, where Shang-Chi doesn't have to, like, feel like he has to prove his morality and goodness to these people, where they're just like, cool, we don't know what that is, but go off, I guess. Right. That was a good point, Jonah, because that's actually something that I that I could not articulate, is that I feel like they're just so much more willing to listen than the Avengers are. Uh, I think that, you know, him, him interacting with actually Cyclops would be fascinating because Cyclops has been put in these really difficult situations where he it looks bad and then he's, you know, confronted by the Avengers. It's something they can relate to. Uh, it would be nice to actually see him interact with some, you know, people of color specifically maybe some asian mutants of which there you know are relatively many so it would be nice if we could get that in there you know see them be able to relate to each other and communicate and listen to each other i think that that would be such a fascinating story to read especially with jilan in their court i always flash back to the panel of sue storm confronting cyclops and hawks pox and being like what are you guys doing and cyclops not being like shang chi although 
you know, having been in the past, so it's a very interesting twist, is basically like, we're taking care of ourselves because you guys never took care of us. And, you know, Shang-Chi, the situation's a little different, but we are talking about the scrutiny of the superpowered community onto a certain group and having a sort of expectation for how they will behave and that group needing to work their own morals before they figure out how they're going to present stuff to the Avengers who often, you know, give off this presence of like, you answer to us, you know, if, if we find you to be a threat, we will show up regardless of how well we know you or, you know, what we might not know about the situation. So I always look at that moment with Cyclops and Sue Storm versus the moment when the Avengers confront Shang-Chi and both in the like, we're a complex family with a like big reach trying to figure things out way. And also, you know, with Zhilan specifically as a link, there is just an incredible story that could be told between the mutants and Five Weapon Society. So one thing we didn't get to address specifically is the moment at which we finally get all five siblings together. We we break Takeshi out of prison. We know through the narration that Sister Hammer is going through some stuff with her grandfather at that same moment. And then finally, the two stories dovetail and the four siblings go and pick up their fifth and we finally get everybody together. Was this what you guys were hoping for from this reunion? Did it work for you or were you expecting maybe more fanfare, be it confrontational fanfare or exuberant family fanfare? I don't really think that there needed to be uh, fanfare. The way that Shihua was dealing with Chieftain Shin kind of left her in a position where she really wasn't able to go to her default method of dealing with Shang-Chi. So having him show up and be like, hey, we knew you were in trouble. Sorry we're late. We're here to help now. And takes her back to try to patch her up and get her up to speed with why she was attacked and all that. I felt that that was a really good way to bridge the differences that they've had in the past. It was perfectly fine. I enjoyed what I read. I do eventually want to see more, you know, Shihua communicating with the siblings, you know, that she has not necessarily seen in a long time. But, you know, that could wait. That could totally wait. So I think the reason why we didn't get it here is because I don't think there was enough time in the issue to fit it in. We had a split narrative for a good portion of the story where we see Sister Hammer being attacked as well as the rest of the kids, I'm calling them kids, but they're only one of them is an actual kid, going to go break Takeshi out of jail slash make sure he's okay and safe. There wasn't really time to really fit in that kind of confrontational moment. I think we're going to get it eventually because I think there's going to need to be a conversation of exactly what's going on, what's happening, these are the new rules, this is the new management, this is how Shang-Chi's doing things as opposed to his father. I would love for her to interact with Sister Staff and be like, who are you? Don't know who you are and see how she feels like you know when being confronted with a sibling who is also a mutant because i've always find that fascinating when only one sibling has the mutant gene as opposed to it being like in the family so i would love to know like how does sister hammer feel about a mutant how does she feel about mutantdom in general does she share her father's beliefs of like kill all mutants mutants are scum or is she like i don't really care i don't i don't know how this affects me like what are her thoughts on that and i think we will eventually get more interaction with them but i think because we're 
trying to push the narrative forward and get more into the story. We're, we're going to have to save that for later because this, I will be honest, not a lot really happens in this issue. There really isn't much outside of this being another setup issue, which is fine. It's perfectly fine. I think it does a really good job of getting us Sister Hammer, what exactly their grandfather is up to, Shang-Chi's current plans of how are we going to deal with this problem. There's a lot of good tidbits and good things here to help create a really cohesive story of what we've gotten so far. But in terms of pushing the story forward, we didn't really get a lot. We kind of just ended on them going into Taolo as opposed to them exploring Taolo a lot more. So I think for this particular issue, because this was meant to set up, okay, we have the plan, we have our characters, we have the party, let's go on our mission. We'll get the more slowed down moments of these characters interacting with one another and dealing with whatever problems that they and feelings they want to talk about later once they resolve the issue with their grandfather. Jonah, you made a really good point and something that I was eager to bring up is the fact that I have been loving this book. I loved this issue. There were some great moments. The last three have been these really minor setup stories that have not moved things forward. We're like inching ever closer to Talo with each one. And even here, when we finally get in the front door, we're still just in the foyer. We're not We're not digging in. We're not going through, which is okay. It has been a joy to read. Gorgeous art by Marcus Toe. And I think we're getting to see some really fascinating, complex dynamics between this family. It's a lot of great setup, but it is a lot of setup. And when you get to the three, four issue mark with a book that is building up like this, there is a danger that if the next two issues don't really pay off with some big storyline, it's going to be frustrating to readers. And so while I definitely agree with you insofar as this was totally good, I'm I'm certainly ready for something big and something that's really a deep dive into what this story is going to mean for the long term of Shang-Chi. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And it might just be a difference in storytelling. And that's a fine. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with a slower paced storytelling like this has been doing. However, the story could be picking up just a little bit more. I think this these issues have been really amazing to look at. I think the art and the dialogue and everything has been very beautiful and great and enjoyable. But I think I'm missing, for my personal taste, a little bit more faster paced where I feel like, okay, I can kind of, I, I need to see the ball rolling just a little bit faster. It's moving at a pace where I'm comfortable. I'm like, okay, I'm enjoying this. I'm having a good time. But I feel like we could be getting to our destination faster. And I know some people will say it's not about the destination. It's always about the journey. But I, ha- I feel like we as readers should be allowed to feel like, okay, we can f- be at the destination in the foreseeable future. Because with the way that the current storytelling is going, it's kind of like a Dragon Ball Z arc where they'll spend like 50 50 episodes on one fight so it's kind of like huh (laughs) are we going to get there within the foreseeable future where they just stare at each other powering up over and over and over again Mm -hmm. (laughs) well you know and it's the interesting thing about serialized stories because the fact of the matter is 
at least half the time, the destination is part of a larger journey. So, you know, we're not talking about, I want to get to the conclusion of this book or even this arc. We're talking about, I want to get to the next like oasis in the desert. I want to get to the next place where there's a lot of stuff. The time to get to that place is really important. And I think this is a perfect example of a book that has made good use of that time. But there is a degree to which it's been a minute. And I think we're all definitely ready. Like I think if the next book really hits hard with some solid revelations and some big moments between this family, it's going to be really satisfying after what we've built up to. Absolutely. I, I think a lot of the reason why it's, you know, it's felt like the last few issues have have gone a little bit slower is because they're just they're paying a, they're trying to pay a lot more attention to character stuff character development and it just feels like we're you know we're just at this lull almost and i can i can fully see and understand that so i i would like to see you know more happen in one issue i've greatly enjoyed what i've read so again i, I actually didn't even really think of that until you guys said it but i i actually don't have as many notes for for this issue because of that i guess most of my notes are let's see takeshi gets all the heart eyes and uh <laughs> sister dagger equals more palatable damian wayne <laughs> <laughs> we've definitely talked about this on the show before and it's really true that's all i see and yeah. i just like her so much more so, so. yeah very similar vibe much easier to love character <laughs> oh my gosh so much so but yeah i i fully agree with you guys i would like to see you know the book become a little bit more faster paced you know in the oncoming issues like it was before i think that they're just trying to pay a little bit more attention to character detail which you know i also really appreciate and you actually bring up a really good point steven to talk about maybe why they're spending so much time on character detail because if i'm not mistaken this is shang chi's one of shang chi's like biggest and longest works that's continuous that's coming after his movie and this is the issue where if people enjoy that movie and want to read about him in the comics they're probably going to read this and i think they're trying to do a lot more catch up for people who are either new to comics new to reading shang chi wherever they stand because i don't think shang chi has really broken the cultural vernacular as a superhero before his movie came out or before his movie was announced really jonah you i swear are either reading my mind or somehow found my notes because you're getting every <laughs> to every subject right as that's like the next thing on my list nico brought up the other day in a conversation that we had about electra my fascination with process and the influences besides the creative team that come into a comic book story and shang chi is i think to me one of the most stark examples of this because we have this character that just had this really big moment in the mcu that is rather different than what we've seen from him in the comics prior to this and the need to sort of bring those two a little bit closer together for you know uh synergy and and hopes of selling more comics and selling more tickets to movies and merchandising and all that this book has been very interesting because i think they've walked that line really well in terms of this is a comic book story and it is different than what the movie is giving you i mean we have fully three more siblings four more siblings yes four that's math so we're getting a, a different variety 
version of Shang-Chi, of course, but we're seeing these elements that I feel like there has been some kind of mandate that has said, like, you've got to make sure you get Talo in. We're going to need to see the Ten Rings at some point. And seeing how a creative team weaves that stuff together and brings a book closer to its MCU counterpart, such that hopefully the audience kind of expands and everybody gets more excited about this. This has been a really interesting book to see that happen with. For me, it's kind of been like the reverse. I was reading this comic before I watched the movie. I really just watched it like a week ago. So (laughs) So being able to see the references that they're pulling from the comics, but also the references that the comics were pulling from the movie, it was kind of cool. I enjoyed being able to go, oh, hey, that that's cool. I, I recognize that. It's a little different, but I understand what it is. It makes sense. Um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting experience now. Ooh, I'm very interested in that perspective. I like that we have that now that you've seen the movie, actually. So that's pretty cool to hear. And Kyle, would you want to see more of the elements from the comic pushed into the movie? Like, would you want to see in the next Shang-Chi movie, the discovery of more siblings? You know, would you want to see, because obviously in the movie, the father's society is taken over by Shang-Chi's sister. Right. Uh, Spoiler alert. Sorry about that. To answer the question, I mean, I, I definitely would like to see additional siblings, but I'm concerned that the difference between the Ten Rings and the Five Weapons Society might not actually work quite as well. Because the siblings, they are specifically tied to a type of weapon, whereas the Ten Rings, it's more a society based on those magical artifacts. I'm not really sure if having them there would make sense. They'd, they'd really have to come up with an, a good explanation for why they were there. I just don't want them to be like, oh, hey, I have a sister. Uh, you have a sister now. Or, hey, you've got like two other brothers. It needs to make sense. You worry about sloppy retcons. Yeah, I don't want sl- sloppy retcons. To, just to echo what everybody's saying... I think what they what they want in the direction for the movie at least we have Katie and we have Shang Chi's sister and they're kind of stand in for his siblings and that might be like agreed someone might yeah. say like Jonah that's gross Katie's supposed to be a romantic interest and to that I say oh, listen I to what I'm saying first that. no best friends I I think they should just be friends but beside the point we're not talking about the romantic romanticism or whatever shipping whatever blah 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 more importantly <laughs> I think that they chose instead of having Shang Chi having multiple siblings they decided to create these two characters where they're kind of a little bit more amalgamations of characters that have already been in Shang-Chi's life and established in comics so that we can get that characterization and that character growth in stories that we've seen them in without having to specifically do those exact plots. I think that we probably won't get to see any other siblings because you guys are right. It doesn't feel like it would be part of Shang-Chi's story. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. That's very true. I mm-hmm. agree with both of you. It'll be very interesting interesting to see how these final issues sort of take us further into Talo and maybe reflect some of what we've seen in the movie and maybe just go in entirely different directions. We don't know. And uh, I'm pretty excited to find out. Any other thoughts before we wrap up, guys? Five Weapons Society, a force for good. (laughs) (laughs) 
a force for chaotic good. <laughs> there just, you go. I just really love his, did I just come up with our catchphrase? Like, that was the <laughs> cutest thing ever, and, like, I'm obsessed with Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi.